I want to mention that, as I said earlier, it's fairly obvious that I'm not John Travis. I am in the middle of teaching the Vipassana retreat that's happening up at Vajrapani in Boulder Creek, and that retreat, I believe we're in our 17th year of having that retreat there, and for the last many years, John has come down to teach on Thursday evening. And... um, So some of you know him well, and some of you are probably wondering who I'm talking about. Um, He's a spirit rock teacher, as am I, and he and I went through our teacher training together, actually. So he's like a sibling. And um, John had prostate surgery about six weeks ago, which um, went went quite well, and um, he got badly infected after the surgery. And in a way that had it gone on, could have been life-threatening. And he's better, he's fine, and he's recovering, um, but not really well enough to come down to make that extra effort. So he's been teaching kind of, sort of, part-time at the retreat, and um, he sends lots of love, and he plans to be here next year, and that's how it will have to be, I guess. So um, he's waiting to find out whether he's going to need radiation on top of the surgery. Dukkha. So I have been at retreat, and as many of you know, at retreats we have interviews, and um, people come and talk about their experiences as they're sitting, and sometimes here people ask, you know, can I come and talk to one or another of us who teach here. And and so when we have these conversations, um, one of the things that I often hear, we all often hear, are um, different stories of suffering. And because usually it's just not so very often that someone says, you know, I'd really like to come and talk to you, and what they want to tell me about is how everything's just being fabulous, Mm -hmm. you know. There's usually some place where we're stuck in our practice or we're stuck in our life and the cycles of suffering are going around and around and um, we don't quite know how to get out of them. Or sometimes sometimes what, what's up is there's, a, you know, there's been something big that's happened, some kind of trauma, sometimes grief or loss that just seems to be coloring everything that's happening in that person's life. And John, my friend John Travis, often has a line um, that he uses in talks um, that has stayed with me for many years now. And he says, may your past not hold you in captivity. May your past not hold you in captivity. So that's really what I'm talking about tonight. Many years ago, maybe 10 or 11 years ago, I was due to go to actually a Vipassana Santa Cruz meeting. And it was not going to be an easy meeting. And um, there were people who were angry and upset. And I had called my friend Ajahn Amaro to talk to him about you know, getting some advice and that kind of thing. And he likes to give advice, and he did. And then at the end of the conversation, I said, so do you have anything else that you'd like to say to me? And he paused for a little bit, and then he said, yes. He said, don't suffer. 
And I said, well, thank you very much. <laughs> and hung up the phone. And I thought, well, that's really fine. You know, he doesn't have to go to the meeting. I have to go to the meeting. So what is this not suffering business? What does he mean, not suffering? So that's the question, isn't it? How do we go through our lives and, and not suffer? So most of us, as we go through our lives, you know, when you started, often we had different stories that were given to us. And maybe you were the responsible one, or maybe you were the one who was always acting out and getting into trouble, or maybe you were the one who was good, or maybe you were lazy, or maybe you were bright, or you know all of those different, all of those different kinds of stories. And um, a couple of weeks ago, as some of you know, I went to my 50th high school reunion, and it was really interesting to see all the people because, you know, there were people there who had turned out to have fabulous lives and careers and had done really well in school and they weren't in the the bright group when they were in high school and there were other people you know in the yearbook where it says most destined for success you know those folks and some of them actually hadn't had all that much success one thing or another had happened to them and so it was really apparent that those those pictures and frames that we put people in when we were 17 hadn't held all the way through. They weren't exactly accurate. So I want to look tonight at just some different stories about different people. And I want to start with myself. You're prob- many of you are probably aware that it's Burning Man time, right? which is always an interesting event in my family. My husband is a burner. He's going for his 11th. So about 12 years ago or so, we were sitting in our therapist's office one day, and our therapist, who had had, had some sessions with Russell by himself, finally cleared his throat, and he said, <clears throat> I think you should tell her what you're thinking about doing. You know, one of those loaded therapy moments. So poor Russell swallowed, and he said, well, he said, I think I want to go to Burning Man. And I said, what's that? Because I had no idea. So that's where my story began, was this place of my husband wanting to go to something. He said, well, it was this festival out in the desert, and you can find out more about it. So in the second story that I want to tell you some pieces of, is actually a long time ago story. And um, it's about a young man who um, lived around the same time that the Buddha did. And his name was Ahimsa, and he was a student in a spiritual school. And he was very, very good. He was one of the really bright ones who was destined for success. And he was so adept and so much a favorite of the teacher that the other students got really, really jealous, as often happens. And so they put their heads together and they plotted and they started a rumor. And the rumor was that Ahimsa was sleeping with the teacher's wife. And pretty soon the teacher heard it and he said, nah, could never happen. But you know how it is with rumors when they keep going. And so the rumor kept going, and they kept feeding it, and the teacher kept hearing it. And after a while, he began to be suspicious. And after a while, 
he began to believe it and he got really angry and really upset at Ahimsa and got so angry and so hurt and so upset that he decided he wanted to do something that would be harmful to him. So he called him into his office and he said, I have a new practice for you. And Ahimsa, who was a good student and quite willing to do all of the practices his teacher had given him, said, oh, you know, what is it? And he said, I want you to go out and I want you to kill 1,000 people. So Ahimsa said, no, I can't do that. That's not right. And this went back and forth, but he really trusted his teacher. This is probably a story about teachers, too. And he finally said, okay, I'll do it. And then in the third story I want to follow through in this teaching about suffering is a story about a Chinese emperor who was the emperor Wu. And he was, he lived in around the 12th century and he was a great emperor, a really wonderful, kind man. He was also a great warrior and he was a spiritual seeker. But he found that in his role as the head of his government, it was really hard to find someone who would, who would deal with him in a, like a real person and give him serious practices. They were mostly trying to placate him and make him feel good because he was, after all, the emperor. So the Buddha, in his teaching, teaches very often about the nature and the origin and the development of suffering. And over and over again, if you read the suttas, that's what he's talking about. And he was very, very interested in all beings learning how to be happy and to live in a way that they were contented and at ease in their lives. And so his teachings follow some main themes. They follow the teachings about the Four Noble Truths, which is the teaching about the fact that there is suffering in our lives and and it's not just the what is sometimes called suffering suffering dukkha dukkha the pain but he's particularly pointing to that place where it's just never satisfactory we never get fully settled we never get contented the wheel is kind of out of round and um We're always wanting, you know, we're adjusting and fixing and wanting something a little more or a little less. And he says that's that particular pattern, that wanting it to be different from the way it is, is actually at the root of a lot of this suffering. That that, um, attachment and addiction are actually the real enemies in terms of, of finding a way to be happy. And he teaches that it's possible not to get caught, you know, that at, if you're really lucky and you become fully enlightened, maybe completely not caught, but at the very least, at least somewhat less caught and suffering less. And then he goes on to teach in the Eightfold Path about a way of living that has to do with wise understanding and a wise attitude and um, living your life carefully and ethically and training the mind and the heart. He also taught, the other main theme in his, his teaching is that at any given moment we are living out the consequences of our previous actions. And it's not only of our, our previous actions, but it's of the previous actions of the people around us, our families, our cities and towns and countries and cultures, um, 
and that the actions of many, many people um, create a reverberation, much like the reverberation of a bell, that, that goes out for a long, long time. And, you know, in our kind of New Age world, sometimes you hear the word karma tossed around rather simplistically. You know, oh, it's my karma, you know. And I even had a set of bad karma tickets that you could issue at one point, sort of like a traffic ticket. Um, I don't know what's happened to them. I've lost them somewhere. Bad <laughs> karma, probably. And so, But it isn't simple. It's very, very complicated. And... And the Buddha says it's so complicated that if you try to think about it, you'll actually go crazy because you cannot figure the karma that brings you to any particular moment. So imagine, think about all of the karma that brings us here. It's pretty amazing, actually. Each one of you has your own history. Everything in your life that has culminated in it being 8 o'clock on the 20th, I think, of August... Thursday, Santa Cruz. So that all of your personal history, all of the history of Vipassana Santa Cruz, all of the history of this building, somebody who sat with us for a while, um, has since moved away, told us her mother had worked here when it was a shirt factory. So the people who had a, a shirt factory here in this building, the history of Santa Cruz, the Indians who used to live here, it goes on and on and on. It's very enormous that it all came together to create this place, this time, in this moment. So, we come to this moment. You come to any moment, and something happens. Something happens. Someone walks in the room, someone says something, someone does something, and there's a moment of perception. And the Buddha says that in that moment, there's an enormous amount that comes into play that is from your past, from your history. And it influences your perception. Now, sometimes this is useful, right? You see the truck coming toward you, you know it's a truck, you get out of the way, you know? Um, But sometimes it's not so useful because it colors how we see things and we react rather quickly and sometimes that's not so skillful so one more little piece of story because it's one that certainly I have lived out any number of times and um, it's helpful I think in seeing this most of us have at one time or another been in some kind of a primary relationship with some other person and most of us have had the experience that you've agreed that that person is going to come home at a certain time and it gets to be that time and they're not there. We're agreed so far. You all kind of know this place. And you look at your watch and you say, gosh, it's almost 8 o'clock. You know, where is he? He said he'd be here. And then 15 minutes go by and, you know, dinner's burning or whatever or getting dried out or cold, and you go, where is he? He said he'd be here. You know, how come he hasn't called? And and then maybe another 15 minutes, and you start wondering when the sheriff's going to call, or is he dead on the freeway, or or has she gone out to a party, or is she running around doing things that she's not supposed to do, or whatever your story is. And, you know, the longer the wait is, the stories get more intense, right? And can bring a lot of 
upset. And of course, it doesn't help if you've already had a bad day or something of that sort. And then comes the moment, finally, maybe an hour or an hour and a half late, and the door opens, and there they are, standing there in the door. So what the Buddha would tell us is we do not very often see clearly in those moments. We don't. We don't. We don't. And this is, in Buddhist understanding, is actually a form of ignorance. And you can't really see clearly because all that other stuff has happened and it creates a kind of lens that you're looking at your experience through the lens. And so your consciousness, if you're waiting for your best beloved and you're already grumpy and you have this very difficult story, the consciousness has a particular flavor to it and you're looking at the experience through that. It's sort of like having a contact lens in your eye and you forget that it's there, you know. But, you know, how often do we remember that? Usually we just think, you know, we believe our story and we think we're seeing clearly. A long time ago, Joseph Goldstein said to a retreat I was attending, and he said, you know, notice how we do this and notice how we build entire houses out of our stories, our histories. It's not that they're not true. Some of them are true, these stories. But we build these houses and then we live inside of them and we look out through the windows of the house and and we see through the windows of, of the story. So this teaching about how we do this comes from the teaching of the Buddha that's called the teaching on dependent origination. And it's how we continue to cycle around and around and around through the very same story over and over and over again. And it's a teaching that can be understood to be about many, many lifetimes, but it's also very sophisticated as a psychological teaching about how we have repetitive patterns. Mm. So... All of us know that place of repetitive patterns in our lives, I think, where we've done, we've been in the same relationship or we have the same conflict or the same job situation or whatever it is repeatedly. So this moment of perception happens and it all happens very fast. You know, there's this whole process of of recognizing something that's, you know, there's this person walking in or the truck that's coming, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, all very, very fast. And almost immediately there's that moment of this is really unpleasant, I don't like it, or it's really yummy and I want it, or sometimes it's kind of neutral. But the place we're really interested in is the liking and dislike that can happen so fast. Think of, you know, all those times, I think many of us have had them, where someone walks in the room, you know, and immediately you have, you don't know who they are, and you have this gut response of of you either like them or you don't like them. So there you are, you've been waiting for the hour and a half, your best beloved is finally in the doorway, you're looking at them, and can we react or respond without being in the story we've been carrying around? Not so very often. I couldn't. When I used to have be in a marriage where someone was often late, and um, and I couldn't get out of the story, you know. And I was terrified or angry or whatever. And so usually, you know, your mouth opens, and usually what comes out is, "Where have you been?" or something like that. 
and and all that anger and upset and judgment and it's seeing through the lens of the story that's been cooking for that period of time it's so important this place because it's the place then of course where the you can then cycle through a whole nother cycle of suffering because nobody likes being greeted that way right and then maybe you know they had a flat tire or whatever and um, have lots of good reasons for being late but the anger is what comes at them first so this place in the teachings this place about the feeling tone of a particular moment is called Vedana and that's the Pali word you don't have to remember but it's the pleasantness and the unpleasantness uh, or the neither pleasant nor unpleasant um, and it's, it's so so very important because enormous suffering can arise out of that now you can't change where you are at the moment of perception the story may already be there and lots of stories are very deep-seated in our being. They might be stories of trauma. You might have post-traumatic stress. It could be stories of abuse. It could be stories of abandonment. There can be all kinds of stories that we carry around. And they're just there in our being. And they do color our awareness. There's no way that you can get around that in that very moment of perception. We are all of us the inheritors of our karma. But what creates the problem, what's really important, is the clue is that pleasantness or unpleasantness. That's that gut thing that says, yes, I want it, or I want him, or I want her, or no, you know, take it away. So, for example, in my story, I began to ask people, so, Burning Man, tell me about Burning Man. Well, you can imagine, you know, there are lots of stories about Burning Man out there. Sex and drugs and rock and roll and lots of images and I see these pictures of people out there in the desert and I began to have this idea that surely some naked blue babe was going to... Um, take my man away from me one way or another and and it was very scary because it's not my particular kind of scene and I had no idea what he was walking into and some people said oh you know more drugs than you can possibly imagine and other people said no it's really great and I really love it and you know it's, I think it's still true today there are lots of different opinions about it and so a lot of fear came up. I had lots of stories, lots and lots of stories, as he drove off that first time. And our friend Ahimsa, who had the teacher who was um, telling him to go out and become essentially a serial killer, uh, went out and, after some difficulty, started. Killed his first person and then his second. And it said he got up to 999 so it's a lot of people. And one day, he was out walking, looking for the thousandth. And he had, people were pretty scared of him by then, and so they would go and hide. And he finally decided maybe he'd go and kill his mother because she at least would see him. 
And as he was walking through the forest, he spotted this monk walking ahead of him, carrying his alms bowl, just very peacefully walking. And he said, aha, take him instead of mom. And he began to chase him, but no matter how fast he ran, he couldn't catch this monk, who was, of course, the Buddha. And finally he called out, stop, stop. And then our friend, the Emperor Wu, who was the emperor, who was caught in everybody's story about what you're supposed to be if you're an emperor. And nobody ever told him the truth about what you had to do with spiritual practice, sort of like you know, the other emperor who didn't have any clothes. And they told him all the easy things, you know, diet and exercise and contribute money for monasteries and make merit, but they didn't really teach him about practice. And one day he looked up in his court, and there was a very un-Chinese being, a really tall, red-haired, blue-eyed man who just had this very imposing presence. So the good news about all of these stories is that they are interruptible. The place in the cycle of dependent origination, the cycle where suffering is created over and over again in one lifetime or many, is exactly this place of noticing pleasantness and unpleasantness. And so it's really important in practice. And we've been talking about it this week at the retreat. And it's something you can do in your everyday life practice here, just to begin to notice, oh, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant, you know. And to notice the desire or the aversion that's arising and to notice your reaction even when someone walks into a room. So we can really begin to question our reactivity. So with lots of help, you know, I got to look at my own story about Burning Man. And of course it certainly helped that Russell came back time after time, kind of sweeter and softer and more open and more fun and Um, clearly whatever it was that was happening for him at Burning Man was really being useful to him and to us. And I think the only thing that was a little alarming was the magenta hair that he came home with one year. (laughs) But, you know, it washed out and I got over it. And And our friend who was Ahimsa and who was now known as Angulimala because he had a string of fingers of his victims that he wore around his neck, he called out to the, to the Buddha and he said, stop. And the Buddha turned and looked at him and, the, and said, I've stopped a long time ago. When are you going to stop? And in that moment, something shifted for him and he stopped. And he never killed his thousandth victim. And in fact, he became a follower of the Buddha and then later became a monk, and it said, in fact, he became an arahant. And the Emperor Wu saw this gigantic man, and he said, thought, boy, I'm going to ask him some questions. So he said, so I built all these monasteries. You know, it's like, I built Vipassana Santa Cruz, you know? What about the merit of doing such a wonderful thing? You could imagine if somebody had said this to us when we'd just finished building this. And, and this, the man who was, in fact, Bodhidharma, the great Zen sage, said, no merit at all, which is not something you say to an emperor. 
And the emperor Wu, he was just shocked. And he realized that here was somebody who was going to tell him the truth. So he said, well, what about all the holy teachings, you know, all these scriptures and suttas and things? And Bodhidharma said, eh, nothing special, vast emptiness. So the emperor Wu was really rattled. So then he said, well, who are you? And Bodhidharma said, haven't a clue. I don't know. And at that point, I, I, I don't know. Haven't a clue. So, this is a pretty amazing place when these things happen, when these turnings happen, when, when we suddenly see without the lens of the story. And it can be so helpful to begin to understand that maybe we don't know. Maybe we don't know. It's just unpleasant. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's just pleasant and yummy. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. And so Angulimala, you know, became fully enlightened. It said he became particularly useful at helping women with childbirth. I've never quite understood that, but that's the legend. And the Emperor Wu, when he came to, Bodhidharma was gone. He never saw him again. But he began to live much more happily, and he would now and then step out of being the emperor. And he'd sign on with a monastery and scrub toilets and sweep the paths every now and then. And then the court would decide they needed him back, and they'd go pay the monastery a lot of money and kind of get him back for a while. So he'd go in and out of being the emperor. He didn't quite escape his karma completely. But he was a great deal freer and he was able to practice a lot more. And, you know, each of us, I think the Emperor Wu story is particularly interesting because each of us has a story that we are somebody. That's the most basic story. If I were to say to you, who are you? Probably you wouldn't say, haven't a clue. You would probably say, oh, I'm so-and-so, and and I live here, and I do this, and I do that. And that's who I am. And so I would invite us to consider that even that is a lens through which we are seeing. And even that you could practice. I suggested to the people at the retreat that they could practice just saying to themselves, who are you? And then you practice saying, don't know. It's really fun, actually. I recommend it. And that we really let go of this story of self. In the end, the Buddha was free of all of his stories. And so I just want to close reading you this one thing, which I think is quite interesting when we talk about building houses of stories and the house of the story of self. So this is what he said the night after his enlightenment experience, or the morning after his enlightenment experience. He says, Seeking but not finding the house builder, I traveled through the round of countless births. Oh, painful is birth ever and again. House builder, you have now been seen. 
You shall not build the house again. Your rafters have been broken down. Your ridge pole is shattered. My mind has attained the peace of nirvana and reached the end of every kind of craving. Hmm. So that went on a little bit longer than I normally talk, but I'd be happy to take a question or a comment or two if you have one. Why not? Please, Penny. Maybe I missed something, but what happened to the monk um, who was being very successful, and this is the same monk that was told to go out and kill a thousand people? Yes. And what happened to the teacher? What happened to the teacher? (laughs) I'd like to be able to tell you that the ethical committee of his center (laughs) turned him in, but actually I don't think we know. So that's one of those stories where he was, I I just didn't quite... He gave the bad instructions and Angulimala went on to become Angulimala, but what happened to the teacher? But you know, what the Buddha would probably have told you is that's very difficult karma, right? To do something like that. And at some point, then he would experience the fruit of that karma. Um, Whether, again, immediately or at some time. I often think, when I think of people who get away with things, right? Like maybe this. I often imagine what it might be to live in their mind and heart. Mm-hmm. And then I realize they don't get away with it. Mm-hmm. Ever. And you're speaking of the teacher. Yeah. Because I've never heard that part of the story of ah. the I've well. never heard that, that that was the reason he went around killing people. That was something new. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess thank you. No. <laughs> it's kind of a gory story. <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting to think that maybe he didn't cook the idea up himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do, I actually like to tell it because I think it's a warning about teachers. Mm-hmm. And I actually think we need to hear that, all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's possible to abuse power and mm-hmm. it's possible to get caught even for people who are teachers. And there are plenty of examples in our culture when that, where that has happened. Yeah. Please, Diana. Um, yeah, I just wanted to I, it's always helpful for me to hear, like many times, how much a feeling isn't necessarily the reason to uh, a huge story. Yeah. yeah. And and I was thinking of once on family retreat when I went to one of the you know the adults all get together and talk and kids are out you know playing squash or whatever. And for some reason, you know, my daughter and I were had had been you know having hormonal things going on to add at each other. And I chose that moment to focus on the fact that many years prior, I'd been sick for a period of time. And this was, you know, the reason why she was so angry. So I had my, my whole story. And, and I shared it, you know, and Ajahnama kind of looked at me and said, your job is easy, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, why would she be mad at you? that you were sick. And, you know, I'm all, you know, sniveling and everything. And I, <laughs> I just kind of said, 
well, it was so hard for her, and I feel so badly. And, and he said, well, why don't you just ask her if she's mad at you? Yeah, and it was, you know, so simple. <laughs> it's just so simple. It's just always so nice to remember that just because you have a feeling that comes up. Uh-huh. It is so utterly useful to begin to realize that we do not have to believe the mind. You know, Jack Cornfield likes to say the mind has no shame. And it will say almost anything. And it comes out of, you know, sometimes it comes out of past history. It's not that it just invents novels, although sometimes it does. But it's very, very helpful to kind of you know, something goes through and you think, huh, I wonder if I should believe that or not. Yeah, Alice. So, um, what went in my, on in my mind at the, um, during the sit that started the tears flowing was sitting with her feelings and returned home and I went, it's just her feelings. That's all it is. And I thought about the, the story of the Buddha who, when he's dying, it's, he says, don't make anything of this. It's just suffering Buddha. Mm-hmm. And so it is. You know, it's just, it's just feelings, just the mind state, just the Did you all hear what she said about no. a, phone, a phone call that didn't get returned and the hurt feelings and that this is just, it's suffering. It's, it's just, just suffering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, maybe that's enough. Something to chew on for all of Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.